to work to give yourself permission to have more food, I can almost guarantee that your preoccupation and or obsession with food would just naturally kind of go away. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? After almost two full months away, I am finally back in Toronto, and I'm pretty happy to be back. It was an amazing series of trips and holidays and stays and seeing so many people, but I'm ready to take on January 2020. I feel like it's going to be an amazing start to the year. Part of the reason I'm feeling that way is that we're launching into another round of All Day Fit's signature program called Strong Academy. I have the honor of being the head of this program and it's something that I just love so much. For those of you that don't know what it is, it's a three month strength training program. It's for anyone who has never strength trained before all the way through people that are seasoned veterans in the gym. We really cater to everybody, but what you get is an amazing team environment. You get a coach, the ratio of coach to client is one on six. So you have a small group that you get to know and that you train with, and then we take you through three strength training programs that last four weeks each. It's an amazing way to learn about how to properly track your weights and reps and sets in the gym and then learn a little bit about progressive overload, which is one of the key principles of good strength training. It's such a fun program. I just love the energy that everyone brings. I love the transformations that happen. And the beauty of it really, guys, is that the transformations, yes, they start in the gym, but then over the course of the three months, I watch them translate into all the other parts of people's lives. And that at its core is why I love strength training so much and really why I love being a coach. If you're interested in joining this program, you have about one week left to sign up, but please reach out to me. You can find All Day Fit on Instagram, or you can send me a DM. Let's talk. I'll answer all your questions, but I would love for you to get in on that program and start your year off on the right note. In this episode, we're talking about one of the other key players in your health and wellness, and that is nutrition. It's such a delicate balance in nutrition between believing in the power of nutrition and nutritional therapy to heal and believing in the power of just leaving all the nutrition info and facts and data that we get so bogged down by behind and committing 100% to intuitive eating. To be honest, it's a line that I dance around all the time in my head. It's one that I'm still trying to understand for myself and also understand in the way that I speak with others. As some of you might know, I'm studying to be a nutritional therapy practitioner. The general philosophy behind nutritional therapy is that the right kinds of nutrient-dense whole foods have the power to heal you physically, mentally, and emotionally. It emphasizes the importance of good digestion as a foundation for your health and well-being and really encourages you to tune in to what's going on in your body and any symptoms that you might be experiencing because it connects the dots between what you eat and how your body feels. 
I've personally seen and experienced the powerful changes that you can make in your life when you're armed with a little bit of quality nutrition knowledge. On the other hand, you guys have heard me talk in some depth about my struggle with an eating disorder. When I think about how nutrition principles have been hijacked by diet culture and corrupt food industries and the devastating effects that diet culture has had on so many people's body image and relationship with food, including mine in the past, it makes me very wary of the entire field. It's people like this episode's guest, Anna Sweeney, who give me hope in navigating these murky waters. Anna is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian certified sports nutritionist, certified intuitive eating specialist, and the owner of Whole Life Nutrition in Massachusetts. Anna is an expert in the treatment of individuals struggling with eating disorders, disordered eating, and emotional eating. She combines her knowledge of the science of nutrition and experience in the treatment of eating disorders with direct, compassionate, and heartfelt care to help her clients realize the pleasures of living a whole life. Anna's passionate about nutrition, wellness, and whole health, and works with her clients to establish healthy and happy relationships with food, weight, and their bodies. Anna's goal is to help her clients to heal their relationships with food and body, trust their own wisdom, appreciate self-care, and to enjoy every bite along the way. I have been really looking forward to getting an expert in eating disorders like Anna on the podcast. Because yes, while I lived through one for many years and was able to share my story, I am not an expert in understanding the ins and outs and the causes and the ways that you can tackle an eating disorder like somebody like Anna is. So it was so nice to listen to her and to get her expertise in this field. I'm also just so compelled by her conviction when it comes to the concepts of intuitive eating and just listening to your body. She speaks so clearly and strongly about the problems of diet culture in a way that I think really clarifies and helps us understand the problems that it's causing in our society. She's also a member of the Health in Every Size community, which I think is such an important movement. So it was really great to hear her talk about that as well. Anyways, this is a subject overall that is very near and dear to my heart. It's one that I love learning about and learning to speak about even more. So I am super excited to share this conversation with Anna Sweeney with all of you. Enjoy. Hi, Anna. Welcome to How Do You Feel? It's so nice to have you on. It's lovely to be with you, Casey. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. I've shared previously with my listeners, um, back in episode 21, I shared my eating disorder story. I underwent a kind of seven-year journey with different phases of an eating disorder, um, and I shared that in some detail on that episode, but now I'm really excited to talk to someone that does this professionally and, mm. and that can actually talk to some of these issues because I can really just share my experience with it, but not much more than that. So I'm curious, first of all, why you chose to specialize in eating disorders and hoping that you can tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Absolutely. So I got involved in eating disorder care because someone that I love struggled really significantly and I wanted to be able to tell her that people get better. It just so happens that I fell in love with nutrition and nutrition counseling and I, I went to school with the specific intention of becoming an eating disorder dietitian and have spent the last 11 years 
doing just that. Um, and my job now as a solely outpatient provider, I really, I work with a diverse population, people with all different diagnoses, talking about body image, talking about taking back our power from diet culture, and really looking to help people on their journeys to heal with food and body and mind and just kind of making food a heck of a lot more easy than an eating disorder makes it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people end up working with people with eating disorders because they had one in the past. Um, yep. I know you've talked before about how you didn't have an eating disorder, but I'm curious about your own story with food and your body. So I have been really lucky um, in that I have not struggled with food personally. I, I think having someone really close to me who who did struggle significantly really changed the way that I well, I mean, it changed the course of my life, but the only time in my in in my life that I've ever had any real energy around food has been in the context of trying to heal from secondary progressive multiple sclerosis with um, nutrition, which uh, is not a possibility. It's like a disease that doesn't have a cure. And um, when people are ill and struggling, it makes so much sense that we turn to food or turn to things that are like personally, like things that make us feel like we are responsible. Like Mm -hmm. I can do something about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went on a year-long adventure of, of eating in a way that was not intuitive for the first time in my entire life. I stopped feeling connected to food. I stopped feeling good about the way that I was nourishing myself and started feeling like really judgmental. Like I wasn't able to do, you know, I'm not able to follow this like very specific plan well enough. And like, why am I not getting better? Because someone else got better and wrote a book about all of this and I should be able to yada, yada, yada. And it took, it took a lot of supervision and support from my colleagues to be able to make the decision to yes, of course, go forward with this nutritional intervention Um, do whatever you can to feel better. And also on the flip side to, yes, of course, Anna, it's okay for you to say that you would rather be an intuitive eater and feel good in your body and go, you know, forget about following diet rules that haven't actually. Mm -hmm. That's so hard. Did you feel guilt surrounding that when that didn't work for you? Uh, Oh, I mean, of course I felt guilt and I felt extraordinary disappointment and I felt like I felt personally bad that I wasn't able to do, you know, this weird eating thing well enough. Um, And then I came to a place of recognizing that I can hold gratitude for the fact that there's another person who, you know, got famous and published this book that has probably sold millions of copies to really desperate people and hopefully has helped some people. But I also know it has harmed others, right? And I'm so grateful that I have the education and the kind of clinical knowledge that I do to be able to back out of that dietary intervention. But I will tell you, it actually left me feeling a little pissed off. Mm-hmm. Like that this, this person is writing a book saying like how I healed myself of progressive MS. I don't know if you, well, I imagine your listeners are very aware of this, but there's no such thing as healing progressive MS. It is like multiple sclerosis is a disease without a cure. So 
it it is very 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 frustrating to me at this point to think about the way that powerful people flash around ideas about healing that may or may not be attainable to the masses and also um, the only reason I was able to follow this diet is because of the fact that I live with a certain degree of privilege that allowed me to buy the foods that I needed to to be compliant with that plan and Lord knows there are plenty of people that I've worked with who would not have been able to literally afford to eat in the way that this woman is prescribing. And so it pushes all of my buttons. The idea that like healing is really only for the elite that like drives me insane. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because this is such a specific case of Mm -hmm. claiming something that may not be true with food, but you see it everywhere and all the time, all the right? Time. All yeah, the time. which is which is so sad because we're we're putting food on this pedestal to solve all of our problems, be it health problems, mental problems, physical problems when it really shouldn't be there. Not at all. And I I think this is what diet wellness culture does such a good job of is like really scaring the pants off of people and suggesting that there is this one way for you to eat and even think about this in terms of like sports nutrition, right? Like, um, and I, I posted on Instagram about this yesterday, like for those of us who have enough adequate access to balanced diet, the odds of us needing to like really be hypervigilantly focused on a specific nutrient are really pretty small. And like macros, the concept of macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, that's like really old science. But now that we're packaging it under like the guise of macros, like there's this new sexiness to it. It's just like, these are the places that we get energy, guys. This is not new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a good point. We're just like creating these buzzwords around things and making Mm -hmm. it sound like this exciting new concept when those are, those are the things. Yeah, exactly. It's just food. 100%. I'm curious about the work that you do with your clients a little more specifically. So I know this is a very broad question, but just to kind of give us sort of a picture of the things that you're doing with clients. Could you tell us about some of the steps that you're taking with people to help them heal from their eating disorders? So it really depends on the client and it depends on where they are in terms of readiness for change. So some of my clients, I might be working with them um, on specific things like challenging food rules or incorporation of quote unquote challenge foods. For others, I might be having conversations like full sessions that we're talking about body image and we're talking about diet culture and how really, really unfair it is that we have a hierarchy of kind of body, body goodness and helping clients to heal from years and decades of dieting and unlearning messages that have really not served them. I feel really lucky because my clients are brilliant and lovely and they, they are the ones that do the work. I just happen to be sitting on the other side of the table while we are having these conversations. And I think it really, of course, it really matters where someone is when they come in to start work with a dietitian. And the sort of nutrition therapy that I practice, the sort of medical nutrition therapy that I practice is really unique because I'm not talking, to be quite honest with you, all of my clients know everything that there is to know about food. 
this is not, this is not about providing yeah. information that my people don't have. If you have the internet, you probably know more about food specific things, nitty gritty things than I do. I don't remember the last time that I looked at a nutrition label. Truly, I don't remember the last time I did that. And I have clients that can come into my office and tell me with like extraordinary detail about what is in everything that they eat. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of my job is about helping to give that people permission to back out of nutrition in a way that it is truly like, if we're really that hyper vigilantly focused on nutrition, your relationship with food is not conducive to healing anyway. Mm -hmm. And so helping my clients to really take a much broader view of food um, and thinking much more about relationship with food and how we want to show up in the world as an eater or as eaters rather is, is far more important than, than anything else that I do. Hmm. Do you find that more often you take this sort of like zoomed out picture that you're talking about in which you're talking about what is our relationship with food? What's our relationship with our body versus like addressing some of the more specific behaviors that you see around eating disorders? I'm specifically thinking about like, I was stuck in a cycle of restrict, binge, purge mm -hmm. for a mm -hmm. long time. So instead of like dress, addressing those more specific things, do you find yourself think, thinking about big picture more often? So I do think about big picture. And of course, if I have a client who is cyclically engaging, and, and it's interesting, I'm glad that you said this, like there are some behaviors that are culturally elevated, right? I have a mm -hmm. lot of clients who would love mm -hmm. to be able, like they like the, the restricting part of their eating disorders more so those are kind of socio-culturally elevated behaviors and then there's a lot of shame about the binging and purging that happens subsequently and really helping to zoom in on behaviors like that with my clients and be able to talk like about the fact that this is biology kid this is not like you're doing a thing incorrectly in fact, it's quite the opposite. Your, your body is working beautifully um, and trying to reestablish that balance. And of course, it takes time and it takes practice. And this, is, this to me is the value of a, like a really important nutrition um, or any sort of therapeutic relationship, right? So there's initially, there might be a little bit of reliance on what I am saying. And ultimately, my knowledge gets transferred into my client's body knowledge. And then like my clients become their own nutrition experts and, you know, don't need me anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Could you speak to the fact that biology piece that you're talking about where um, within this cycle, the fact that it's natural after restricting to enter a binge phase and just how that works a little bit? So the thing is our bodies don't have the ability to differentiate like cute dieting or restriction of certain food groups from famine. And so the old primal parts of your brain that become very, very, like your amygdala that is very wired to seek out food does its job. And it's amazing like how much like this primal part of your brain really kicks up when you're not getting enough food and this is where I hear clients saying, like, I'm thinking about food all the time. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Actually, not, like nothing. You're just mm -hmm. not getting enough food. If you, if you were to give yourself permission to have more food, 
I can almost guarantee that your preoccupation and or obsession with food would just naturally kind of go away. But there needs to be a guarantee of adequacy communicated to your body over a period of time. It's not a matter of if I have one really solid meal and then I don't eat for X number of hours or I go back into kind of my restrictive ways. The body needs to have consistent messages of saying like, I've got you, I'm going to take care of you. There will always be more food. And until, and, and this is the interesting thing about restriction, it does not matter if you are restricting physically, if you are actually limiting your calories, or if you are following food rules, or if you believe that there are like good or bad foods, if there is psychological restriction happening or physiological, like physical restriction happening, these same parts of your brain light up and make you more driven to, to seek out food. And this is why it is so important for us to be thinking about healing relationship with food in conjunction with healing behaviors from Cool. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's such a good way to look at it. And I, I feel like if I had heard that the, the part where you're talking about how it's just actually your brain doing its job, I feel like that would have freed me from a lot of the guilt and shame that I felt around, well, there must be something wrong with me that I'm so preoccupied that I can't continue to restrict. Like, it's just so freeing to know that actually that's just what your brain is supposed to do. And you don't biology. have to necessarily see it as such a bad thing. Yeah. Right. No, it's biology. It's about survival of the species. Mm -hmm. So with my clients, I feel that right now there is a lot of conversation around how you don't want to be too restrictive, right? Whatever that quote unquote restrictive means. But then I always get the question back of, well, what does restrictive mean? So mm -hmm. you touched on this a little bit, but how do you know if you're being quote unquote restrictive with food? What are some like easy ways that someone could say, okay, I probably need to adjust the way I'm thinking about food a little bit. So one thing that I like to ask my clients to think about is when it comes to putting together meals and snacks for themselves, asking the question, like, would I give this to a friend and really, really think about that. So if, for example, you are having, and, and I talk about the guideline of threes, right? Three meals, two to three snacks a day. Meals are three to six food groups at a time. Snacks are two to three food groups at a time. If you're eating this way, you're eating approximately every three to four hours, thereby the guideline of threes. Hmm. Uh, this is kind of cyclical consumption. This is what our bodies are seeking when it comes to being nourished. But if, if someone is engaging in sort of or pseudo restrictive patterns or straight out restrictive patterns, I love the question of like, would I give this to a friend? Because most often my clients and even, I mean, truth be told, like it's tough to, to work in my industry and have people not say like, oh, like, do you have judgment about the way that I'm eating? Oh, I, I know I should be doing X, Y, or Z. And I get to be like, I'm not that kind of dietitian. But thinking about what I feed this to a friend, getting curious about how often someone's thinking about food, right? If you are mm -hmm. thinking about food all day long and not in a, I'm looking forward to the evening dinner, that, like the dinner plans that I have tonight, but in a, I'm preoccupied thinking about food, that's a really good cue that you're not getting enough food. If you are following specific rules with the intention of achieving some 
nutritional goal, whatever that means, I would be really curious about whether or not there's adequate nutrition going in. But I, I really do like the like, what I give this to a friend. That's awesome. I love that question. I'm definitely going to use that. Please do. Yeah. So you're talking about challenge foods and rules around foods. And it's interesting because I previously definitely had many, many foods that were like, no. And I had a lot of fear surrounding them and I couldn't eat them unless I was in a binge phase, in which case I would eat all of those things. Right. Of course. And it's been such a work in progress to sort of like slowly but surely reintegrate those things. And on Halloween night, it was interesting. I noticed that I was sitting there eating a full-size candy bar and I looked at it and I was like, I don't actually remember the last time that I was able to eat a full-size candy bar without binging afterwards. Like it's been, it's been years and years and years and I just sort of did it. So it was kind of a cool moment for me, but I'm curious when people have these really specific fears surrounding foods, how do you help them work through them? You know, it really depends on the person. I do a lot of eating with my clients in session and I would certainly recommend to any of your listeners get support in doing work in terms of healing if there's disordered eating or an eating disorder that is present and it it's this is hard stuff to do by ourselves and mm-hmm. like if it's possible to seek support and there is fortunately some really cool things happening on social media which is not the same thing as actually getting one-on-one support and i recognize that not everyone has access to specific care But when it comes to challenging food rules, I get really curious about the etiology of the rule. Like, where did this come from? So I have a lot of clients that would say, like, this is a belief that my mom had and thereby I have it. Or my grandmother had this idea. Or I saw it on TV or my best friend who lives in a more or a body that I would like to live in doesn't eat X, Y, or Z food. So... I'm going to try to not eat those foods. Um, Really getting super curious about the sort of relationship that you want to have with these foods and figuring out what it would feel like to incorporate them in your day. Would it mean that it sends you into a binge spiral? And if that's the case, what I would first recommend, so like I'm I'm psyched, Casey, that you could have like a full-size candy bar. And I also appreciate you, you, you acknowledging that historically that might not have been a thing that would have been possible. If someone is struggling in this way to find a way to incorporate challenge foods, I would recommend incorporation of those foods in the context of eating like a meal or a snack, but probably a meal would be better. So like you're having all of your regular food, whatever that is, toss in the extra challenge thing in the context of feeding yourself normally. So we are minimizing like the hunger before you're eating a, a specific food so that you don't have primal hunger kind of overruling and overriding your ability to kind of self-regulate around those foods mm-hmm. um, and make sure that you feel like do whatever you can to nourish yourself in ways and in places that feel comforting and comfortable. Some of my clients practice like deep breathing, like five or six, like really good diaphragmatic breaths before they sit down to eat and get utilizing mantras to calm themselves down before they, they fuel themselves with those challenge foods can be really, really helpful. And it might be helpful to just say like to a friend, like 
this is a really hard thing for me to eat. Can we eat it together? Hmm. I love that. Yeah. So we've been conditioned to believe that our health is very tied to the size of our bodies and that smaller bodies are fit bodies and our healthy bodies. I'm hoping you can tell the listeners why that's actually not the case and why health and fitness can exist in a very large variety of body sizes and shapes. Mm This is something I'm very passionate about. I am an avid member or an active and avid member of the Health at Every Size community. The fact is we can improve health by focusing on behaviors, right? This is about moving away from weight-centric care, thinking about like weight as the primary outcome. Instead of thinking about behaviors as the primary outcome, if someone is not getting enough rest, if someone is not able to hydrate appropriately, if someone is not getting balanced fuel, if someone doesn't feel safe in their lives and perhaps can't like move or what, I mean, whatever. I am someone who lives with thin privilege and have a disability that like it makes movement very, very challenging. And we are missing every single mark if we are going to say that we can look at a body and determine someone's health or someone's lack of health. This, in my opinion, is the most kind of socially acceptable form of discrimination that there is. Weight stigma is real and it is quite, it is deadly. Um, We know that just experiencing discrimination based on shape and size has true physical ramifications. There are cardiovascular and glucose metabolism and lipid metabolism, things that change simply based upon the experience of discrimination, not based on any other marker. And there are, there are lots wow. of studies. That, that's a beautiful study out of Harvard from 2017, I think, called the Alice, talking about allostatic load. But it is far more damaging to experiencing weight discrimination. So we know that if somebody is living in a larger body, they're less likely to go to a doctor because they have potentially have experienced discrimination. They're less likely to go to a gym because they might not feel welcomed in said facility. They're less likely to engage in some health promoting behaviors. And that being said, the exact opposite is also true. There are plenty of of folks who live in large and I say fat, not as a, not as an insult, but as a descriptor, there are people who live in small bodies and people who live in large bodies and we cannot ascertain whether or not someone is healthy based on physique alone. Um, That is just lazy care. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I really loved hearing about um, and learning about was the fact that just because society has decided that there's a certain body type that is best doesn't mean that everyone's body is genetically meant to look like that body, right? Like we're, we're in all human traits. There's just so much variety that exists and that we accept yet for some reason within our physical bodies, we haven't been okay with accepting that there's meant to be such a range. Mm-hmm. And you're completely right. Like biodiversity happens on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, We are not meant to live in the same size bodies. And human bodies, and I think about this in terms of weight, like people have always lived, it's like a bell curve. There have always been small bodies and always been larger bodies. Diet culture and actual practicing practice of dieting 
has moved that bell curve a bit, but because we know that dieting is the number one predictor of weight gain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so the last thing that I want for any of my clients to engage in is dieting practices. Although of course I will work with anyone who is struggling living in this culture and this world that is, it's really hard. And I don't have, I don't have lived experience of living in a larger body. I don't know what it is like to experience discrimination based on my body size. And I hear stories that are heartbreaking and not me, knock me down at the knees and make me a much more ardent member um, and a louder voice in my, in my community because we, we need to do better for all bodies. Yeah, definitely. It's such an important thing to talk about because as you said, this is a type of discrimination that for some reason we're we're not realizing it's happening and socially it's just so accepted, which mm-hmm. is which is devastating. We're catching on to diet culture in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think that in my community at least, in the fitness community that I'm in, when people start to hear like fat burn and calories and um, you know, cleanses and things like red flags are going off in our minds. But there are many other ways that diet culture is very sneaky about how it shows up. And one example that I saw on Instagram the other day was a bodybuilder talking about how when they're not in prep, they're actually practicing intuitive eating just because they're not inputting every single one of their bites of food into some kind of app and tracking it all. And they're calling that intuitive eating. So it's sort of like Mm -hmm. a hijacked concept. I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you could if you could talk to some of the ways that diet culture is starting to show up in more subtle and sneaky ways and trying to hijack these terms that are supposed to mean such good things. So I think hopping on the intuitive eating bandwagon, um, and this is why Evelyn Trivoli, um, who was one of the writers of the actual book, Intuitive Eating, and I'm so excited their fourth edition is coming out in January. Mm. Um, this is why Evelyn made the, the hashtag intuitive eating official because intuitive eating itself as, as a hashtag has been hijacked. And if you're suggesting to me that there is a person who is practicing really, really stringent methodology in terms of eating on five days out of seven days, and then they're intuitively eating on the other days, I think there is a massive confusion about what intuitive eating actually means. And I am not suggesting that athletes need to be thoughtful about how they are fueling their bodies, right? This is why professional sports teams have sports dietitians to make sure that people are nourishing themselves appropriately. But what we are talking about is totally different thing, right? And this is where like Fitzbo just pisses me off because we're not talking about actual like people's health i think about the things that are being talked about on a lot and i don't follow i don't follow that many fitness personalities but there's a lot of talk about like very specific things so i've seen like a big resurgence of like beet juice things and like what, what i don't i don't know um like coconut waters and all you know like they're just like all these new catchy things and you have to be really thoughtful. You, your community has to be really thoughtful about the things that you're recommending to your clients because for some people, it might be really okay. If you say, you know what you should do is like eat some more beets for like nitric oxide production, which I don't think is real, but okay. 
and for some people like that's that's okay it's not you know it's not a huge deal they'll do it for like one day and then move along and there will be other clients who you have who will take the things that are said to them acknowledging that you may or may not be a nutrition professional and i certainly don't want to exclude people for having lived experience and learning in their own way um, and in my book is a difference between being a, a nutrition professional who has had supervised hours and has been schooled with the specific interest of understanding biochemistry and metabolism. Um, there's, there's something different between that and taking a couple weekend courses on nutrition. Um, yeah, and so no that being said, I know there are plenty of coaches and people who are training folks who may be the for, like the first source of um, nutrition information that your clients are receiving. And if that is the case, I would be really, really, really thoughtful about the information that you are providing as gospel. And again, most people will be really fine with hearing what you have to say, taking what they like, leaving what they don't. And there will be some who will hear every word that you say and will practice it so very well and they will get quote results and they will be the best clients you've ever had because they're super drip like driven with quotes around it and what you are actually watching is the unraveling of someone's life and you're you're watching a disorder take hold there's nothing new about nutrition science it is an evolving science we don't know everything there is to know about nutrition because Remember when like acai berries were like, or what was it? Goji berries were going to save us like 10 years ago. And now acai bowls are like a cool thing. And kale as though it's like a new vegetable is, and it's like a super not new vegetable. There are plenty <laughs> of ways to get B vitamins and folate, but like kale and coconut everything. So I think that's now like five years ago, coconut chips, coconut ice cream, coconut oil. Co like It's fine. But again, we were thinking it was going to be like the thing that was going to save us. Every couple of years, there's going to be a resurgence of an old food that is going to come back. And some study is going to say this is the magical thing. With regard to nutrition, there like really is no such thing as a magical thing. If you are selling something that says something else, I really want you to question, and I really want all of us to be questioning, like, where are we getting this information? What is the point of what we are saying? Are we making money by selling a product? Is that what we're doing? Again, I have, I, I appreciate, like, we have to, we have to make money. And food is food. It's very important. We all need to be adequately nourished, but we are making way more of a big deal about this than it needs to be made. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just want to make the point that, that you've made again, that as fitness professionals and not nutrition professionals, we have to be so careful about what we are disseminating to clients and understand that our lived experience, even if we believe that something had a benefit for us or a certain way of eating had a benefit for us, whatever it may be, our lived experience is not everyone's lived experience and everyone will be different and take that information differently. So it's something that 
that I think needs to be talked about more because just because you're a fitness professional, it does not mean that you're able to provide your clients with this detailed nutrition information. It's a conversation you can open and that you can start, but where I think that many, many people overstep that boundary by a lot. And again, I think there is value if you have clients that are coming to you and are saying they don't know anything about nutrition. Again, I think it's really hard. It's hard for me to believe largely people, I mean, people are self-selecting to come into your gyms and that means that they have access to Google. Like everybody sees, you know, the latest and greatest thing. You as an authority figure have an opportunity to help someone really thoughtfully nourish themselves and make sure they're getting enough nutrition to support the like athletic endeavors that they're trying to undertake. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's, there's just no such thing as a magic food. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Such a good point. I'm curious. I want to ask a little bit more about you. I'm curious how your relationship with your body has evolved over time, especially having MS, which I know is a progressive disease. I don't know a ton about the details, but how has that affected your relationship with your body? You know, so I, I grew up with thin privilege. And so I really didn't think very much about my body. Um, and in some ways, I still don't think a lot about my body. I had the really good fortune, and I have the really good fortune of working out at Cressy Sports Performance in, in, in awesome. Massachusetts. Yes, no, it's fantastic. And I started training there with Frank Duffy, who is a fabulous trainer. He lives in New York now. But I started working with Frank kind of as my physical decline was really starting to kind of take hold. And so I have a lot, I actually will say I'm a lot more connected to my body as I am kind of losing my, as I'm losing my ability. And I don't know if that makes sense. Like I, I really appreciate the things that my body can do like in a functional way. And there's no such thing. Like when I remember Frank saying to me all the time, like, this is not about, it's not about what this looks like. Like we're not here for you to do this with perfect form because you're not going to be able to do it with perfect form. And there are still really impressive things that you can do. And so learning that, you know, like learning that I can safely get my butt up off the floor back to my walker like that, that actually really matters. That's a day-to-day thing for me. Um, having the upper body strength to make that happen because largely my lower body is what has been affected so far um, has been really, really, really helpful. And this is where I actually have, I have so much respect and so much gratitude for the work that you guys do because, you know, I am working out like Corey Kluber is sitting next to me and like there are professional baseball players and really high level college athletes who like I know by name and like they know me and it's very like it's really charming and funny but like I appreciate that there are coaches and trainers who are willing to do work that is not simply about like side-by-side comparison videos or images and are willing to modify programs so that they serve a wide variety of clients. And I think about this in terms of like 
fat bodies in gyms too. Like, are you making sure you're able to train bodies that are fat? Can you make adaptations to your programming so that clients in all bodies can feel comfortable and confident moving their bodies? Like that's, this is really cool and interesting. And in my opinion, probably going to be the thing culturally anyway that will make you stand out as, as a fitness professional. If you are inclusive and you welcome, you know, like all bodies, that's a way better place to go than just a place where like one specific aesthetic is welcome. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I don't know that I'm really answering your question, but being in my body is, is real. I mean, it's really, really interesting. I'm like grappling with like grieving of the loss of my functionality I really miss like being able to like walk and this is why I have inaccessible views on my Instagram like I, I created this hashtag to and ask people and people from all over the world have sent me videos and pictures of places that I can't get to as a disabled mm -hmm. person and it is a huge beautiful collection but it just it is interesting to live in a disabled body and I know that my experience of disability is so much kinder because I am conventionally attractive and I live with thin privilege and I'm white. Um, I, I know that my experience of being disabled is, and I'm also young. Um, it, it's just, I have a nice experience of, of living with disability and I don't know what this is always going to look like. So now I'm just, I'm grateful for the things that I can do, even though six years ago, I could do them in a very, very different way, right? Mm -hmm. Like our bodies are always changing and that's by design. We're not supposed to stay the same. Yeah, that makes sense. Anna, I just have one final question for you. And it's a question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. I'm curious what makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? So two things. I actually really love going to the gym, even though I can't do all of the things. I, I love that. I'm working with a personal or a physical therapist now and I'm, I'm delighted um, to be able to demonstrate my strength, but, and strength is relative. Of course. Um, I love that. Good answer. <laughs> but, but more than that, um, I am so lucky to do the work that I do. I work with the smartest, most thoughtful and caring humans on the planet. And I am just gifted to be able to support my clients in their healing journeys. Um, I, I don't really think that fate has anything to do with it, but my original dream was to be a sports broadcaster. And I'm so happy that this is where I landed instead. Cool. That's awesome. So I love your Instagram. I love the messages that you put out there. I can tell that you just put so much love into it and, um, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but it's also just like so thoughtful and things hit my feed right when I need them to hit. And it's just great. So I would, I would encourage anyone listening to definitely um, go follow you, but what are some other ways that people can get in touch or learn more about you and your services and what you do? So I'm at dietitian Anna on Instagram and that is probably the best way to find me. The link in my bio is, is a straight access to my website. Um, I have like a, a bunch of podcasts that I've been on and I'll be happy to add this to my list. Awesome. Um, 
And the, I mean, there are lots of ways, but send me, I mean, send me an email, send me a direct message. I actually am pretty good about responding if people have questions. And I happen to have largely because of Frank Duffy, I have a lot of, and Eric Cressy, I have a lot of trainers who follow me and I am always delighted when I get questions about body image and I get questions about how do I talk to a client who may be struggling like that stuff. And even you asking me to be on this podcast makes my heart so full because it makes me know that like you as my counterpart are looking to do better to support other humans on the planet. And like that is life goal number one. Awesome. Please, please, please reach out. Great. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Do you have anything final to add before we sign off? No, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Anna. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? Remember, a new episode comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you subscribe on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or CastBox so that you don't miss an episode. If you have someone in your life that you think would benefit from all the awesome things that we talk about on How Do You Feel and the amazing guests that we have on each week, please share the show with them. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you. I hope that everyone has an amazing week and make sure you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.